0: National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordam. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, Exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. <laughs>
1: Trump romps in Iowa, and Iran hits back at President Biden. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of the Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the Bound by Oath podcast, C-SPAN, and Babble. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we got our Iowa results. We're not surprising. Trump. All the polls showed Trump around 50, and Nikki and DeSantis uh, close in the, the upper teens or maybe the lower 20s. So Trump, indeed, gets above 50%. He's at 51 DeSantis at 21 and change and Nikki at 19 and change a little bit behind DeSantis. You know what the question is going to be, Jim? What do you
2: make of it? Well, Rich, I can origami so I can make a pat. I can make a pterodactyl. <laughs> I've wanted to do that airplane joke for a wh- quite a while. Um, and we might as well do it because the surprise of the night was that there were no surprises. Um I, you know, for weeks or months, I've been saying that you know the Republican ha- roughly half the Republican Party is hell bent on nominating Donald Trump for another uh, term, and the other half of the party is either opposed to Trump or open to other options, but that they're not unified uh, and primarily divided amongst uh, between Desantis and Haley, with a couple other you know uh, stragglers in the middle. The, the, the voter who supports a- Asa Hutchinson, um, and that unless that other half could unite trump was going to cruise and so far that's what we saw last night uh won 98 of the 99 counties last i checked he lost that last county by one and this was the one with, i believe that has iowa state university uh home of Brees hall and uh, other important uh, football players um you know like this trump was always in the driver's seat um the lower turnout, uh, you know, 110,000 people instead of the 180,000 people they had last time. They had a competitive one in 2016, but uh, in the end, not you know, Desantis did do a couple percentage points better than his final poll numbers, as uh, folks out in Iowa were telling me. Not enough to make a, a huge difference on that. Um, you know, uh, one okay, the, the the one thing that's sticking with me is that you know, for for weeks. I've been reporting this and almost everybody else at NRS reporting. Yeah, it looks like, you know, Trump's going to win Iowa and DeSantis is well behind. And Nikki Haley's kind of coming on, but she's still, you know, hoping to get into second place. And I don't know about you guys, but I got a lot of grief from the DeSantis folks. I got a lot of grief from DeSantis fans who are like, "Uh, you're going to wait. It's just you wait and see. You're so wrong. You're not talking to the right people. And lo and behold, it turned out to be exactly the way everybody expected. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of sick and tired of this. You know, ah, oh, you know, you're you're just you know, there's we can feel the momentum out there. No, no, maybe it was an earthquake, maybe it was something from fracking or something. <laughs> but it's not, uh, you know, it was exactly the way it was expected to be. And I'm a little tired of everybody insisting that when you tell people this is how it's looking, ah, you're lying, or ah, this is all part of some effort to suppress my guy or something. Hey, you know what? Sometimes the news is bad for your guy. Suck it up and learn how to live with it. So anyway, that's my that's my irritable mood for the mm-hmm. uh for yeah.
1: The so so we're we're gonna talk next segment about the path if there there is one for DeSantis and or haley going ahead but you know DeSantis had like a very very minor surge at the end he won among voters who had decided the last couple of days that turnout operation and jim Jim's right they they banked a lot of on that because you know there was so much activity in the campaign headquarters and these people were knocking on so many doors or making so many calls and that that was good for you know some polls had him at 15. Uh, so it's good as a turnout operation a good turnout operation is for you know three four five points whatever which in a normal race, you know if you're bunched up around 25 percent or, or 30 can put you over the top and make a difference You just can't make a difference in a race where you're losing by 30 and no I mean this is just it's um, a- astonishing result above 50 percent in a contested Iowa caucus is just like nothing we've ever seen. A 30% margin. I think the highest margin ever was 12 points, which I think Bob Dole got uh, back back in the, the 80s. So, so this was a thumping. Uh, according to the answer, entrance polls, Trump won every demographic group except moderates and uh, people with advanced degrees and people who want the candidate with the right Temperament and Nikki Haley won among those groups, but otherwise, you know, Trump was winning evangelicals and non-evangelicals. He was winning uh, college-educated, and non-college-educated, etc.
0: Yeah, listen, I, there's no grand theory of last night's results that tries to evade the resounding verdict of Iowa's caucus voters, or tries to massage it into something that's a little bit more ambiguous in order to favor his opponents. None, none of that. None of that's reasonable or rational. Um, this was, if you tried to concoct the best case scenario for Donald Trump heading into this, it would, it would look a lot like what happened. He got a majority of the vote. So he just kind of underperformed his polling average, but generally performed where his expectations were. He's 30 points up on his nearest competitor. So there's no narrative coming out of this that suggests Donald Trump underperformed in any way. Ron DeSantis manages to come in second and he's no threat to Donald Trump anywhere on the map. Nikki Haley is, but she kind of underperformed in the, in the suburbs, suburbs, she, matched expectations based on her polling, which was kind of surging late. And she just about performed where her polling average was. But she's deprived of any narrative going into New Hampshire that suggests she has a lot of momentum. Vivek is out and he's going to be Donald Trump's most a vivacious supporter and and surrogate on the trail. Republicans like him for some inexplicable yeah, reason.
1: I think Vivek just decided that um, being in the race was an obstacle to what he really wanted to do, which was endorse Trump. So so he finally right. had to give up. <laughs> right. Drop so he could do. the I mean, he, the said, he said he said last night his carry the luggage, but Trump he, said no, oh, it's okay. You can you can perform it throughout.
0: Yeah, he's he's dropped out to spend more time with his hero. When he dropped <laughs> out, he said that he couldn't be president unless unless something happened in this country that we really don't like. I have no idea what that means. It's kind of a, <laughs> veiled, it's like a veiled threat. He's such a weird dude. And he thinks everybody else is weird as him. So he's he's very grating. But he'll be around forever. Um, so, yeah, what you can't say is that Donald Trump's support is somehow illusory. That it's not as, as, as firm on paper, in real life, as it is on paper. Big victory for Donald Trump. But there are buts. He got 50% of the vote, yes. But he didn't get the other 50% of the vote. In a very low turnout contest, lowest turnout in Iowa since New Hampshire's or since uh, 2000, and I don't think you can just attribute that to the weather, because it really wasn't evident in the rurals where you would think you'd see most of it. Where the drop-off was really big was in urban counties, Polk, Johnson, suburban counties, Story, Dallas. The party is a Trumpier party, but it's also a smaller party. Donald Trump won 56,000 votes last night to sweep just about every county save one, as Jim said. But he won 45,000 votes in 2016. He, he you know, it's, he's better, but it's small beer, small beer. And he, did, he had this conciliatory note in his um, speech. He was kind of gracious in ways that are very un-Trump-like, which is a strategic calculation. You can see the gears turning in his head. And you have to think that that is a, a product of his understanding that he has to unify a very divided party. And it's not a given that get in line or, or fall behind is going to be the message that works. A lot of Trump supporters appeal, like Mike Lee, for example, appeal to emotional blackmail and threaten Trump you know, Trump skeptics on the right to balance their apprehension with democratic governance against the offense to civic propriety that Donald Trump represents. And they say, you have to subordinate all that to, to this imperative of this moment or risk the opprobrium of Mike Lee somewhere down the line. That isn't necessarily going to work. And if the drop-off in this turnout suggests that the Republican party writ large is smaller than it used to be. Yeah. That's a big warning sign for Donald Trump heading forward. So yeah, big night for Donald Trump. There was a
1: blizzard. There there was a blizzard.
0: Yeah. I don't, I just, uh, I just don't uh, think you can attribute it all to the weather. It's entirely mm -hmm. possible, but in urban areas where you would think that, and they're very good at clearing out snow in in Mm -hmm, Iowa. Right. And in urban areas where you would think that that machine would be the most effective. I don't think you can say that that had the depressing effect here. I think the depressing effect was a, this wasn't a competitive race. And B, the candidates on offer were just not compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I, I really like nice Trump. You know, one, it's, it's like amusingly cynical, right, and opportunistic. And, and he, you know, he'll, he'll be open about that, which is also kind of amusing. Of course I'm calling him Ron now. You know, he's no longer a threat. You know, so I'm not going to call him the sanctimonious. But you're right. He he needs, there's 25% of the party that's disenchanted with him, and, and he needs... A lot of those people, if he's going to win in November, now the problem with doing the, you know, you only got 50 and there's 50 not with them. Yeah, but, you know, if Avake and DeSantis weren't in, Trump would have been probably above 60, I, w- I would guess. But Charlie, what's your take out of Iowa?
3: I don't know what we're going to talk about for the next few months because this primary is over. The question was, is the poll lead real or is it illusory? The answer is that it's real. All of the analysis becomes somewhat irrelevant. Trump's going to be the nominee now. So you might as well skip ahead. I do think some of the turnout numbers should worry Republicans in the general, but they don't. Republicans don't care about that. And they're probably going to pay the price for it.
1: Charlie, that was perhaps your most terse answer ever on this podcast.
3: Well, I just don't think there's anything to say. I've been watching the same movie now for nine years. Why would anyone think it's going to end differently? And I can understand wondering, as we did, and I did a few weeks ago, but we've now seen once again that... The Republican primary electorate wants Donald Trump. It's going to get Donald Trump. There seems to be nothing that dissuades the Republican primary electorate from choosing Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what the shifts in the landscape are. He's older. Doesn't matter. He's under indictment. Doesn't matter. He lost the last election. Doesn't matter. He tries to steal an election. It doesn't matter. In fact, some of those things seem to help him. I'm sorry to be blunt, but you know I've written this before on the website that I just think that the vast majority of the stuff that we talk about is pointless because the only salient fact is that people want Donald Trump. They like him. They mm-hmm. like him. It's not about whether or not he delivers. It's not really about what's going on in the country. It's not about what happened to him or what he did or didn't do, or his character, or even his policy positions. It's him. He is the electromagnetic force that changes all of politics. And until he's out of politics, that's, I think, going to remain true. So we can talk about this, but as you say, I mean, he won by so many points. That you can't say, well, if the AP hadn't called it for him or if there hadn't been a blizzard or if DeSantis had been more relaxed on the stump or if it's just nonsense. It's just the Republican
1: voters want him. So I was pretty dismissive of the calling thing, the complaints about the calling. But I come around to, the, they shouldn't have, they, everyone should have just waited another half an hour. But obviously it didn't make any, any difference in the result whatsoever. So Jim, Charlie says Republicans don't care whether Trump delivers. They actually think he's delivered, right? This is this is the, every attribute pretty much, except for the temperament thing I mentioned with Nikki Haley, or Nikki Haley's strength in the caucuses last night. You know, they they think he's the most electable. They think he has the best experience. They think he's the strongest leader. It's just everything. They they like him, and, and they think he's a great president, and they think he's going to win again.
2: Yes, where's the question there, Rich? Or <laughs> like <laughs> most so, importantly, most, um, oh, I'm sorry. No, I just want just one little anecdote of this. Um, so I'm driving around. I had a, you know did a Fox News hit out in Iowa, and they sent a driver, thankfully, because roads were a mess. And uh, the driver, you know, taught you know, talk turns to politics, the driver's a Trump supporter. And it begins by saying, you know, I, I really, I think all of the things being equal, I really prefer a president who has military experience. So I'm like, oh, okay. And maybe so you're going to say something about DeSantis. He goes, and Trump went to military school, and I really think that gives him an understanding. <laughs> and I, I just mentioned that to say that, like, people decide who their candidate is, and then they work backwards to what criteria they think is most important in a president. They do not start with their criteria and then look at the candidate field and decide who the best candidate is. Yeah. That's just the way... This
1: is a classic... Uh, this is part of the dynamic on electability calculations. You decide you like someone to support them, and then you say, then you figure out a way they're yeah. electable. Well, most people
2: are like me, even if they aren't, and they say, well, if, if I like him, everybody else is going to like him, and therefore he's the most electable candidate. Yes.
0: I mean, when you were just talking about the entrance polls, Rich, and one of the most important qu- qu- uh, candidate attributes that voters who, backed Donald Trump, said they support is A... Uh, fights for people like you and B, shares your values. I mean, if you don't think these people who are, uh, you know, you're supposed to vote for actually like you, kind of want to spend any time with you, have any shared affinity for your objectives, it's hard to pull the lever for them.
1: So, Jim, next question to you from the perspective of a year ago, Jim Garrity, as of a year ago, how shocked would you have been about this outcome
2: in Iowa? I think I would have expected uh, DeSantis to do better. I think he came out of 2022 looking very strong, having you know whooped the hiney of uh, Charlie Crist, and I think he's only lost uh, you know support since the beginning of 2023. Um, and I think I would have ex- like I- I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised that the non-Trump vote did not like. There's no sign of it coalescing behind one candidate. Uh, there, there's no more unity between DeSantis and Haley supporters than there was between John Kasich and Ted Cruz supporters Mm -hmm. in 2016. We've learned nothing. True detective is accurate. Time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done, we're going to do over and over again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, how surprised from the perspective of a year ago?
0: One year ago, it would have been pretty surprised, I think, because this is pre-Brag indictment. This is immediately in the wake of the 2022 midterm Mm -hmm. um, failure to capitalize on a historically good environment for Republicans. And there was a fair bit of a backlash to Donald Trump. And that all changed with the indictments. Um, There was no more oxygen left for any alternative candidate, uh, in part because the narrative was this is being done to us not just being done to donald trump this is an assault on our virtues our values our choice and we're being robbed of it and we need to tell these people where to go and i think that's i I lost all faith and hope after uh, colorado intervened in the political process in order to get donald trump off the ballot if this is a revenge election in some some sense maybe not the most important thing for republican voters but it's a it's a pretty important thing there's only one candidate Yeah. Charlie?
3: Well, I am shocked relative to where I was after the 2020 election and the 2022 midterms because it seemed for a brief period that Republicans actually cared whether they won or lost. And that seemed to be the normal end to a normal story. Politician is picked, politician wins, then politician loses, politician falls out of favor. But Donald Trump is not a normal politician, clearly. He also had the ingenious, dastardly, but ingenious plan to flatly deny that the biggest hit against him, that he lost the last election to the guy he'll be facing this time, It's true. It's almost childlike in its simplicity. In any other universe, his primary opponent would be able to say to him, thank you for being president, but you lost to that guy that you're going to be running against this time. But Trump said, no, I didn't. And instead of appearing like some absolute weirdo, a majority of the party said, oh, yeah, no, he didn't. What an interesting comeback from him on that question. And it's worked. So I am shocked in that I thought reality might intrude. I'm not shocked today. As I said, I had a mental model. that had two options. One was that the polling was correct. And the other was there was something else going on. Those were the only two options. It wasn't some great invention. But the polling was right. So once again, perhaps not even for the last time, he's going to be the nominee.
1: Yeah, so I, I I would I would have been totally shocked if you told me I wouldn't even be a contest and Trump would be above 50. I wouldn't have been shocked if you told me Trump was going to win Iowa. You know, that that uh, even when DeSantis was at his height, you know, it was it was obviously going to be uh, a fight and a, and a big challenge. And I think you know, Charlie you you hit on the a really important thing, the inability or unwillingness of the other candidates to really frankly call out the lie about the last election which is which is a big deal cuz it's a lie about an important thing but also goes to to Trump's uh suitability as as a candidate and his his electability if he already lost to Biden once why why you know why would we be confident he's going to win this time but the calculation was just the sentiment in the party was so so strong that the election was stolen or at least rigged or, or unfair that you just couldn't you, you couldn't um, f- fight that, that tide, so you ended up conceding a really uh, a big point um, that was to Trump's advantage. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor, Bound by Oath, the podcast from the Institute for Justice. The world would be a better freer and happier place of constitutional protections for private property were taken just a tad more seriously. That's according to our friends over at the Institute for Justice who have just begun releasing a new season of their legal history podcast, Bound by Oath. Bound by Oath tells the story of how the Supreme Court has cleared the way for government officials to abuse property rights, to trespass on private land without a warrant, to restrict peaceful and productive uses of property, to seize and keep property without sufficient justification, and much more, featuring interviews not only with scholars and litigators but also with the real-life people behind some of the Supreme Court's most momentous property rights decisions. The new season explores the history behind today's civil rights battles, so plug Bound by Oath into wherever you get your podcasts and start with episode one. That's Bound by Oath, Bound by Oath. Please check it out. Our friends at the Institute for Justice do tremendous and Extremely important work. So, Noah, DeSantis kind of dodged the bullet last night. He didn't finish third, which would have meant that he was out of the race today and would have been the final humiliation in what's been a pretty humiliating year for him. But it's impossible to see a, a path forward. He's at about 5% in New Hampshire. There was a new ARG poll, not the most prestigious. Uh, outfit, but they do regular polling in New Hampshire. They show at uh, a close race in New Hampshire as one or two other polls do. Some others show Trump ahead by 20 points, but their poll released this morning had it 40-40, Haley and Trump and DeSantis at four. So he's not winning New Hampshire. He's not performing well in New Hampshire. I guess he's going to finish third in New Hampshire because Vivek is is now out, but he would have Potentially be looking at a fourth place finish, and then we got after New Hampshire. Well, Nevada's in there, but you know, no one's really going to pay attention. That's going to uh, be you know, Trump seventy percent kind of or eighty percent kind of proposition. Then you have a month until South Carolina, where the Santos is at, at like eleven. You know, so h- how is this going to work? And you got to assume he's not going to raise any money. A lot of the questions are going to be, you know, you lost by thirty. Wh- where are you going now? And, you know, the, the MAGA world, you know, not that they've been particularly kind uh, to DeSantis, but it would all be you're sabotaging uh, the presumptive nominee by staying in. How can you do this? So if I were him, you know, you've been doing this for a year. So think about it for a day or two. But I'd drop out. I'd go be a good governor of Florida again. I'd heal these relationships with elements of the party that, uh, like it or not, are extremely important. And then, you know, see what happens going ahead, but he's, you know, even if if Haley drops tomorrow, those people, a lot of them aren't going to DeSantis. I think more of them would go to DeSantis than DeSantis supporters would go to Haley, but they're moderates, they're independents, they're they're not interested in this anti-woke warrior.
0: Well, Ron DeSantis can probably be convinced or convince himself that he's a young man and the future is wide open and 2028 is right around the corner. And maybe 2024 is just, you know, sacrificed. But there's a there's a future in politics for him. And perhaps if he were to have a second act as in an administration somewhere. But I think he's probably done. Uh, I think he had to run. This was his moment. And there's not necessarily going to be another moment. But he'll be term limited by 2020. You guys talked about this. Term limited by the time... He comes out in 2028, and there will be new names and new stars, and the party will move on. And the issue set that Don, Ron DeSantis ran on this year was, was expired, was defunct by the time he got into the race. So he'd need an entirely new issue set. Your ROI as an investor in Ron DeSantis' campaign is a two-point victory in Iowa and nowhere else to the tune of $200 million. That's a bad A, a, a
1: victory for distant second.
0: For distant second. Uh, He just about met met expectations, and not expectations going into this month. He beat expectations going into this month because they were so abysmal, because his primary polling was on a one-way trajectory, down. And if you're throwing that more money at that, it's your ROI. You expect no ROI. It's good money after bad. I would be shocked if he generates much more traction there. Um, Nikki Haley's probably going to perform very well in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is going to look at these results in Iowa, and they will have a fire lit under them. Particularly moderates, particularly independents, particularly Democrats are going to want to register their dissatisfaction.
1: No, you're not with you're where not, the party's no, no, going. Hold on. No, you're not saying that New Hampshire is going to correct the Iowas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am saying that. <laughs> I am it's in fact saying in that. Iowa
1: are doomed, my friend. And I'm not even I'm joking. On I'm serious. You're, you're going to have to have <laughs> McCain, uh, McCain strategy, Christie strategy of skipping Iowa now.
0: Well, McCain style. I mean, it's, we've been talking about 2000 in Iowa. Let's talk about 2000 in New Hampshire. The prospect here of a of a McCain style come from behind, you know, kind of comeback kitty narrative, even though he finishes first, as opposed to Bill Clinton second, um, is very plausible, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the outcome. And for a month in the interim between New Hampshire and South Carolina, we will have a media narrative that focuses on how Nikki Haley is really a star, and maybe she can actually pull this thing off, and that'll move some votes around in South Carolina but not enough to change the ultimate outcome. Uh, if Iowa demonstrates anything, it is that the quote-unquote MAGA movement, which, by the way, back to the exit polls in Iowa, only 46% weighted. 46% of uh, Iowans said that they perceived themselves to be part of the MAGA movement. The majority did not. Um, you would think Donald Trump probably captured all the MAGA movement types. But South Carolina is a pretty maggie state, and then you get into Super Tuesday, which is basically a national contest, and the national contest favors Donald Trump, and it's only getting better and better and better for Donald Trump. So Nikki Haley will do very well in New Hampshire, I would say, and she'll probably attract a lot of attention and a lot of money in that period, I would say. But as you note, there's very few places for her to go afterwards, and in that intervening period, there will be, as again, you noted, all this emotional pressure, all this... Uh, sort of veiled threats. Nice you know, political brand you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. To fall in line, to get in line behind Donald Trump, and to get the general election going. So Nikki Haley and, and Nikki Haley will have to contest in that period. So she, her brand, will be torched as the the Donald Trump fans and the MAGA movement and the bitter clingers to Ron DeSantis' movement all turn against her. She'll have a minority support in the party. And we'll be branded this outsider, this, you know, moderate liberal who who relies on Democrats for, for political uh, sustenance, which is bizarre. I mean, she was the governor of South Carolina for two terms, but that will be the narrative around here. Everybody's reputation is going to be tarnished as a result of getting into this contest with Donald Trump. Toward what end? What will they get out of it? I mean, it's a real disincentive to continue to contest against Donald Trump, whatever yeah. happens. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's, One of my colleagues was joking, if Trump loses... Uh, in November, no one's going to run. He'll run again in 28. No one's going to run against them, right? It'll just just everyone will clear the field for him in in 28. So, Jim, let's stick with Nikki Haley. And then I'll get Charlie on DeSantis. So, I, I thought her uh, speech last night was was pretty good. She can smile. Um, her fake smile lo- looks good in contrast to DeSantis. I can't. You know, either can't manage it, or if it, if he does, it's extremely awkward. I thought the DeSantis message was, you know. Uh, they, they all hate us, and wow, our ticket's been punched, right? Um, and her her message was was a rationale for her her candidacy. Seventy percent of people don't want Biden or Trump, and and I, I'm your uh, I'm your way to avoid that, which makes a lot of sense and is true. I'm just you know not sure that's a, a message that uh, uh, the majority of Republicans want to hear. And I, I do think she, you know, we've seen it, saw it in, in Iowa, we've seen it in the New Hampshire polling. She's just way, weighted too much over on moderates and independents and, and Democrats. And you, you can have that, that kind of coalition and overperform. You can have that kind of coalition and do really well and potentially win in New Hampshire. You just can't have that coalition and win the Republican nomination. So I, I would think even if she wins New Hampshire, she'll go to South Carolina and lose by
2: double digits. Oh, look, I mean, first of all, we got to get through New Hampshire. But right now, Nikki Haley has one giant asset that Ron DeSantis does not. For both these candidates, you can say, "Look, okay, maybe you beat expectations, or you did a little better than your last couple polls." But uh, where are you going to win? Um, and DeSantis is not ahead in his home state of Florida. Things don't look good in South Carolina. There's, you know, like there'll be a whole bunch of states on Super Tuesday. I haven't seen a lot of polling out there, but like where you, you can't get you can't pile up respectable second and third place finishes and somehow get the nomination. You have to win somewhere. And she can say, we have a really good shot at winning New Hampshire. And maybe it will, maybe she will. And that'll be a feather in her cap. The question will be, she'll then go to South Carolina. And as we remember from Bush versus McCain in 2000, uh, and basically every primary in South Carolina, everybody it's, it's like the fight scenes in Anchorman. Everybody gets out their their brass knuckles and their pro bars and just goes to town on each other, and I have really very little doubt that like that, you know you thought there was negative Trump, Trump. If Trump feels like Nikki Haley is the primary um, obstacle to getting the nomination, he and his guys will just trash her reputation six ways to Sunday. And South Carolina was already looking like a very Trumpy kind of state. So uh, I, I will just kind of not. I keep seeing these rumors, mostly on social media, that there's the pieces are going into place for a Trump Haley ticket that uh, Trump clearly wants a woman, that this would broaden the appeal of the ticket. I can imagine certain people who can't stand Trump who might say, well, maybe they win and he has a heart attack in office. And then I get President Haley and everything turns out fine. you know. Um, I, 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 I'm skeptical. I just don't like I, but then she has worked for him before. She's done a lot of people say she's never actually denied it or she, you ask her, you know, will you be Trump's running mate? You get 5,000 words and none of them are yes or no. Um, so I, I guess I, I, should, I, just, I just mentioned that to put that out there. So in the unlikely scenario it comes to pass, I can tell you, hey, I remember I was telling you about <laughs> that. But I, I just, <laughs> I, I just figured Trump would want a carry Lake type, somebody who's going to be absolutely loyal. Yes, boss, you're the greatest boss, and and not have any, you know, potential. Not, certainly not somebody who had insulted him by running against him.
1: Yeah. So Charlie, you, you wondered what we were going to talk about, you know, the next six months. We're going to talk about deep stakes, right? That was, we'll start, start in earnest, uh, next, next episode. Uh, she, she makes sense on paper, I think, Nikki, but I was struck last night. That's not a, uh, that was not a speech by someone who, who expects to be, uh, Trump's running mate. I mean, she, she, she could have taken a, a much different tack. Instead, she said Trump and Biden are the same, you know, which, uh, um, Shows I mean, she she's wants to win New Hampshire and it was a speech geared all to New Hampshire. And, you know, she made a point. I'm, I'm heading to New Hampshire right now. I'll be there tonight. So, Charlie, let's let's go to DeSantis, assuming that you um, think he has no path, which you you, you do uh, logically, Correct. given what you said about Trump having a lock on the nomination. So so what happened here? You know, people ask me this this a lot. We said in our, our editorial this morning that even though it was a huge challenge to run against Trump, especially after the indictments, this has to be counted among the most disappointed and uh, disappointing and poorly run uh, presidential campaigns in memory. Um, I mean, to, to bankrupt the campaign like really early and then have to go all to the super PAC, which dissolves in dissension uh, and, and mass firings and... Leaks to the press and, and just just awful and and basically be out of money prior to Iowa and and kind of use it as a bragging point. Look how much more Haley is spending than us, you know, playing the expectations game. But you know, to a, a year from the perspective of a year ago, to, to if someone had told you he's going to be bankrupt before Iowa, <laughs> you, you would have been shocked. I assume I would have been shocked. And you know, the, the big thing is Trump was, was strong, but then also just Desantis as a performer just not there. It's just totally not there. He doesn't have it. He's never met it. If he did meet it, he'd turn away, you know, he'd sh- shake its hand and then turn away awkwardly and not make conversation with it. I mean, he's never been a hundred miles of it. That you can get away with that in, in Florida. You can't get away with it in the national uh, stage, especially running against uh, Donald Trump. And then, you know, he just always felt, we talked about this, I think, um, last ep- you know, he, he always felt too calculating, like the gears were always turning, you know, because he had to be careful. And this was a product of the difficult circumstances. You know, we were just talking about in the prior segment of contesting, you know, ca- calling out Trump for lying about losing the election. It's just that, that could get him into Chris Christie territory, and then he has no chance. And then this is the last thing. We've talked a lot about the, the different strategies of DeSantis and Haley. I thought DeSantis' strategy was the correct one. But it turns out it was probably only a workable strategy if Donald Trump was not in the race, which is go to the center of the party, the, the kind of soft Trump supporters, m- MAGA people who are not necessarily a Trump, win them over and then uh, assume the rest of the field, the non-Trump field is kind of going to flake away and the non-Trump voters have to come to you. And the two big problems with that, it was hard to get the the soft MAGA people because they were bonded to Trump, especially after the indictments. And then Nikki H- Haley rose up and uh, established a hold on those non-Trump voters and, and denied them to DeSantis. And that's how you end up in the low, low uh, 20s in Iowa. Well,
3: what happened? The first answer is one I'll reiterate. Donald Trump is alive. And Donald Trump distorts the field. And distorts the truth. And his supporters and fans distort the truth. So, I don't think however good Ron DeSantis had been, he would have beaten Trump. But there are problems with Ron DeSantis. And the two that I see as somebody who is not, if I'm honest, especially good at judging how candidates will come across, I'm not really in line with Republican primary voters, clearly, are that he lacks charisma and, more importantly, doesn't like the day-to-day side of politics. He likes being an executive. He's a good executive. But he doesn't thrive on that human contact in the way that a Bill Clinton does, for example. And that he fundamentally misunderstood why he won so big... In Florida, ironically enough, in much the same way as the press has. In Florida, Ron DeSantis was not regarded as some right-wing, unusual bomb thrower. He was not regarded as a crazy risk-taker. He was not regarded as a Trump mini-me. His early affinity for Trump clearly helped him get to the nomination and build a following. But in Florida, Ron DeSantis, as governor, was considered normal. And we can make all the jokes we like about Florida man, but the reality is Florida politics is not that different to anywhere else. And the center of gravity in Florida is the same old traditional Reaganite Republicanism that you see in Republican-led states across the country that you see in Texas, that you see in Iowa, that you see in Georgia. And Ron DeSantis was good at it. Now, he had a moment in COVID that set him apart, but the vast majority of his time as governor has been spent doing normal, competent things, cutting taxes, dealing with the budget, dealing extremely well with hurricanes. Even the decisions that he took that worried journalists, for example, removing pornographic books from schools, were popular among normal people, among Democrats in some cases. His environmental policy is moderate. He gained plaudits from people on the center-left who care about old-school environmentalism, not trying to shut down capitalism, but dealing with lakes, preserving manatees, making sure the Everglades are still there in 30 years. And he seemed to forget that. He seemed to forget that when he ran. He tried to get to Trump's right. He surrounded himself with people who wanted to fundamentally remake the Republican Party, and he forgot the messages that worked really well While he was governor, I would encourage anyone who doesn't follow Florida politics carefully, which I assume is most people for good reason, to go and watch his commercials in 2022. They are about raising teacher pay, the rainy day fund and surplus in the budget, tax cuts, education, making sure that people didn't lose their jobs during covid and the environment. And they have all manner of people, different colors and creeds, men, women, children, people speaking English and Spanish, saying, here's why I'm voting for him. And it, that just wasn't his campaign. Now, I don't think we should spend too much time psychoanalyzing all of this stuff because I really do believe that Trump is a remarkable, force-field-bending thing that, frankly, would have denied the nomination to almost anybody but in that regard DeSantis ran a strange campaign from the perspective of this Floridian because contrary to the way the press talked about him during COVID and immediately afterwards he really was not regarded as an aberration but as a mainstream politician who did normal things
1: and was electable yeah they they convinced themselves that they they had to run basically the ted cruz campaign and that the main vulnerability of trump was on cultural issues where he was a little squishy you know he, he might his answers might on trans might you know have a little wiggle room and focus groups told him that that's where he could hit trump he couldn't even, he couldn't hit him on COVID anymore no one cared anymore but that's where the vulnerability was. And that's why he had DeSantis coming out, you know, first first couple of months. And Noah, you, you hit on this at, at the time on the, the war on woke stuff, which was, you know, it's uh, important issues. A lot of people care about it, but they don't care about it more than kind of bread and butter issues. And DeSantis had to eventually kind of understood that and, and pivoted to talking about his economic record and economic agenda. More, but it was just going to be uh, obviously. <clears throat> bottom line is going to be it was going to be tough sledding one way or the other. So no, uh I feel a little stupid doing this because I, I really don't think it's it's going to matter much at at the end of the day. But we are uh, ultimately uh, a political podcast, so let's do it. Percentage odds that Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire a week from today.
0: I think it's no better than fifty fifty. Fifty fifty, but that's pretty good odds. That's high, <laughs> given given the state of the race, um, and, and so, yeah, and uh, so state dis- power.
1: Of so, you, opponents. so, do you discount, as uh, a bit of a polling maven, the the polls that showed this, um, Trump ahead by twenty?
0: Well, I really, I mean, I I don't want to disparage the work done by ARG or others, for example, but I don't think
1: they have the best track record. And I so think no, you just disparage the work corners. of ARG, Noah. <laughs> You're yeah, I don't know. You're, you're, you goaded me really into it. So. This podcast, you've alienated Iowa, you've
0: attacked good. Let the record show good I have been goaded into group. offending all the people I've offended. <laughs> um but yeah, no, the trajectory of the race has been very clear in New Hampshire for quite some time. And New Han- and Nikki Haley got the boost she needed to get out of Iowa. She she overperformed expectations. She was nowhere near this a month ago. And she she met exactly where she was in the polls, which is where the peak of her polling. And she and she performed at the peak of her polling so bully her um and with christy out i think most of his voters will go to her i think arg's top line number right now is 40 40 trump 40 yeah, uh, Nikki haley although vivex has some support there and that's going to go to him too i mean it's a, it's going to be tough sledding if nikki haley can pull it out it'll be no more than a point or two and it's still a you know it's a jump ball so i think it's a 50 50 prospect right. that's the best odds anybody's had against donald trump all year
1: well, that's true. Jim, we have a 50% on the board.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as Noah. Uh, I think I'll go 40%. Um, 40. Ramaswamy's... Yeah, I mean, like, so I'm looking at Ramaswamy, at least in the previous poll before. you guys. Uh, I love it. Uh, the optimistic spirit. Well, look, Ramaswamy was at 4%. Never quit, Jim. Never quit. <laughs> you figure that... Uh, I'm a Jets fan. You don't have to talk to me about despair. <laughs> As you know, I, I felt really bad for Charlie when they lost, but you only you only adopted the darkness. I was born in it, molded by it uh, when it comes to sports misery and lost causes and long shots and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, you know, like, like the, a big chunk of the Christie vote will go to her. A chunk of the, the Ramaswamy vote, all it's only 4%, but you know, that, that those, most of those folks would go for Trump. Desantis isn't really playing or contesting it that much. Uh, you know that's that's not a great formula for her. So like she'll she'll be impressive, I think probably she'll be within a couple of points of Trump. But I, I you know, if she I, Noah's right, if she wins, she's winning by the skin of her teeth, and it's not really going to be a oh wow, this is a whole new race mood. So Charlie, if
1: we can interest you in playing this game, ah. <laughs> what what percentage odds? I think it's about twenty percent. There you go that's that's uh yeah I think it's like 25 uh, I was like 30 40 at at some point she had a 30 percent 40 percent chance somewhere in there but I just think Trump stomping in and I is, is gonna matter see I
0: think that's the that's why she wins if she wins
1: because you get the reaction
0: I mean it's pretty reliable
1: hmm That's annoying. true. Hydraulic reaction in, in New Hampshire. That could be. If Noah's right, um, I, I hope everyone it. is
3: excited for the Nikki Haley-Stroll New Hampshire news cycle that we'll get for a month.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's the first thing we'll yeah. do,
3: and then yeah. we'll all be obliged to write about it, and his apologists will believe every word of it. And then she'll make herself unpopular by denying that she stole the race from him. Because
2: (laughs) she'll
1: she'll screw herself by saying, no, I I actually won. In other words,
3: the worst thing Nikki Haley can do for her chances is win. (laughs) That's the universe we now
1: operate in. (laughs) Uh, All right. So I'm a a 25. So we got a 50-40, 25-20. So we'll, we'll know soon enough. Two apps from now. No, three apps from now. Maybe we'll delay. I think we'll have to delay. I'm doing podcast scheduling on the fly here. Next week, we'll have to do it on uh, record on Wednesday, not Tuesday. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, our friends at C-SPAN. As we've just seen last night, January has brought the first test. For 2024 contenders seeking the White House, C-SPAN is the place for political campaign enthusiasts with unfiltered, so it's not for you, Charlie, but for the rest of us who are still political campaign enthusiasts. It has unfiltered coverage surrounding the early primaries and caucuses, as well as speeches from key battleground states. Whether you're interested in your state's race or want to follow all the political events, you can get immediate access to what the candidates are saying, plus nominating results in real time with the free mobile app C-SPAN Now. That's C-SPAN Now, or watch live on the C-SPAN Networks. C-SPAN is a wonderful thing. I remember when I was a young reporter in Washington, how excited and daunted I would be to be invited on, on C-SPAN roundtables. And when it's just so hard to get straight news, C-SPAN gives you literally unfiltered access to these candidates. And also when a lot of the other networks aren't necessarily you know, covering the, the campaign that much, you know, they've covered uh, Trump's courtroom dramas more than they have the campaign you can go to C-SPAN and see it all for yourself. So Noah, let's pivot off of the uh, political campaign such as it is and talk about this c- continuing conflict in the Middle East. Last week you had the Biden administration finally hitting the Houthis and the question was whether this was enough to deter if I'm not mistaken you were skeptical on that score. If I'm correct, you were correct. And the Iranians, who ultimately are behind the Houthis, um, launched these um, missile strikes on Monday, and you had the the Houthis striking a U.S.-flagged ship. What do you make of it?
0: Yes. So um, my just cursory assessment of the Biden administration's long-delayed retaliatory response was that it was so calibrated and that in the interim, the benefits that Iran has uh, accrued as a result of its region-wide campaign of terrorism, have been so great that the strikes would not be proportionate to the benefits. The cost would not be proportionate to the benefits Iran has enjoyed as a result of this campaign. It would not be deterred. And I think we've seen evidence that they're not deterred. The Iranians know how to communicate to us. At least Iran and its proxies know how to communicate to us. Their de-escalatory intention, even when they're shooting at us, even when they're firing rockets... Um, the examples being uh, Israel executed a uh, strike on Hamas officials in Beirut and Hezbollah's response was to pull back from the Israeli border. After the Soleimani strike, uh, Iran launched a series of uh, ballistic missile attacks inside Iraq originating from Iranian territory. Everybody thought that was the, the start of a, new, of a new war, but it was a calibrated response designed to communicate the escalatory intention. We know how to read these things. Um, Last night, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps launched a series of uh, strikes, some big projectiles that hit their marks in Irbil, Irbil, which is in the north of Iraq. It's in the Kurdish part of Iraq. Uh, And they said they were attacking uh, spy centers, Israeli spy centers that are somehow operating in Iraq. Their targets were very, very close to a U.S. embassy, and that was not a mistake. And some of them impacted. They were not all intercepted. Uh, That comes, as you say, with this attack, this Houthi attack on a U.S.-flagged vessel. They've been lobbing these missiles for some time, and occasionally administration officials on background would tell reporters when they were trying to justify their lethargy, "Uh, it's not a big deal. These are unguided munitions. They don't know what they're shooting at. They don't know what they can barely hit anything. It's not a huge deal. Well, they hit their targets not infrequently, and now we have a U.S.-flagged commercial vessel that has come under attack by this Iranian proxy. The the region is alive with uh, activity. It's more unstable than even the Middle East usually is. And it demonstrates rather clearly that Joe Biden's um, failure to meet this challenge has made it more of a threat, has made it a bigger challenge. And it will continue to be a bigger challenge until Iran encounters some costs that it can no longer absorb. The fear is they will continue to test their freedom of action, probe their parameters until they encounter a hard target. But at that point, it seems like Joe Biden has made it plain that he's not interested in acting preemptively and, and acting in ways that communicate disproportionality, that communicate that the costs of this aggression will be higher than the benefits, until Americans die, which is a profound dereliction of his responsibilities as the President of the United States. It's... It's not an impeachable offense because maladministration is not impeachable, but it is maladministration. And Joe Biden seems inclined to test Iran's willingness to be as reckless as possible. And Iran will comply. They will be as reckless as possible. And I really do fear that America or its allies will have to see casualties come home before we see any activity that could reasonably be interpreted as possibly maybe entering the orbit of restoring deterrence. We've seen nothing like that yet and it's only going to get worse until we do.
1: Yeah, Jim, so the beauty of deterrence is it stops conflict, right? You know, if you have effective deterrence, you don't have a nuclear war during the the Cold War and the administration has just been unable to get ahead of the escalation curve here and convince the Iranians that if they continue on this course, they'll be hurt in a way that uh, they'll really feel and that will take uh, some time to recover from. But that's clearly not what Tehran's thinking at the moment.
2: You know, uh, Rich, I can't add a lot to what Noah just expertly laid out here, but I'll just make an interesting observation about the parallels between the Biden approach towards Iran and the Houthis, not the Houthis, the Houthis, um, and the approach to Russia and Ukraine. And the idea that from the very beginning of this, from the Russian invasion, the attitude was, well, we don't want to take any actions that will escalate this. Now, I bring with me my baggage of having had a chance to visit Bucha and having had the visit to, you know, talk to people who have handled bodies and their descriptions of the mass graves. Like, oh, you're afraid you're going to escalate it from somebody who's committing mass murders. Oh, you know, Russia seems pretty into this. They seem pretty escalated. You know, you don't have to worry about your actions. Uh, And I think that the odds of Russia going nuclear the more we, the further we get into this war, and the fact that it hasn't happened makes you think that Putin recognizes that that would be an escalation that he and the Russian people could not handle. Um, similar dynamic in you in in Iran from the very beginning. The you know, well, you know, we don't want to escalate this, and we, we're going to stand by Israel, but not until it gets politically inconvenient. Ah, the White House interns are are upset. Well, we can't, you know, we got to back down a little bit here. Um, it is that there's a fecklessness to this president there that is the the resolute desk is ill named during his time here because mm. biden wants to support you know, his first instincts are always fine and then he kind of uh gets hard it gets uh, uh, you know and then all of a sudden he's like i'm trying to tell bb the comment i don't down. think you should blame the desk, um, though. and i think that i think it's more biden <laughs> well i think <laughs> the desk, they they pretty resolute. Them, like, by standing. the way Right. But it's from the ship yeah. <laughs> called Resolute. It's not that they necessarily that the desk itself. But like, you, you, in the end, Joe Biden became president because he wanted to be somebody, not because he wanted to do something. And he's he likes the presidency. He likes the hearing hail to the chief when he goes into a room. Um, but to actually take action. I mean, this is a guy who was shaped by Vietnam and who's, uh, you know, who opposed the Bin Laden. He's always got dovish instincts and he's always got this, you know, he opposed the Bin Laden operation. Gates said that he was wrong about every major foreign policy decision in front of the United States. And as president, he just keeps confirming it, that at some point Iran's going to come around and be reasonable. At some point, if we, we, we want to hit the Houthis, but not too hard. You know what? Let's hit them really, really hard and see if that you know changes their attitude. But no, no, we can't do that. You know might be escalatory. Never mind the situation's escalating by itself. Charlie? Yeah, I just don't understand what the
3: answer to the question, and then what is? So we were told we shouldn't hit the Houthis, because it might escalate. Alright, so let's assume we don't hit them, we just give up the Suez Canal. That's our policy, is it? So we do hit them, then it escalates. Okay? (laughs) Doesn't that demonstrate we have a problem? I, I just, I think this is... Indicative of a worldview that believes that everything is constructed, that it's all a script on a page, or that language creates reality rather than the other way around. This happened. It's happening. There are these people who are doing these things materially. They exist. They have weapons. They launch them.
1: That is a physical reality in the world. It's. Yeah, Charlie, you know, now now you say what what reminds me a little bit of is their refusal to call the border crisis a crisis. As if if they don't call it a crisis, things are okay, you know, and it's kind of manageable. But the worst thing they could possibly do is call it a crisis.
3: Yeah. <laughs> the the world is often a dangerous place. People do bad things in it. They fly planes into buildings and they invade their neighbors and they try and interrupt international shipping, which is not new. And this is an age-old problem. I read the other day when I was looking into this that at the time that we were fighting the Barbary pirates, we were paying one-fifth of the federal budget in tribute. This is a, a reality with which... Seafaring nations or nations that enjoy naval hegemony have had to contend for centuries. So, yes, it's going to escalate, but who escalated it is the key question. We didn't. We were quite happy to send those shipping containers around the world. We're not attacking our own stuff. We didn't tell them that if they attacked us, it would be fine. We're not playing both sides of it. We're trying to get on with our lives peacefully. And they're interrupting it. And if the consequence of us dealing with it is that they escalate it, then we escalate it further until we blow them out of the water. It's just very simple. This is Statecraft 101. I wrote this on the corner. This is not one of those thorny questions that you encounter in international relations. This is the pre-political role of the government. The only thing I can think of that is more pre-political is having a border and defending it. Beyond that, this is what we have a government for. The nonsense that is spoken in the analysis
1: of this is just baffling to me. I love it, Charlie. Charlie for defense secretary. That's awesome. So w- w- what you're saying about this, this has always been an issue with, with pirates and seafaring nations reminds me you know, that R- Romans had to deal with pirates. And if I remember the story correctly, Caesar was uh, was actually, as a young man, taken hostage by a group of of pirates, and they they demanded a ransom, and, and Caesar was a very charming guy, and ended up sort of winning these people over, you know, and you know, uh, sitting around the campfire with them and joking and complaining. His ransom wasn't high enough, and he really thought he was worth more than that. And they're all kind of yucking up about it. And then then when the ransom finally came, he said, you know, by the way, I'm going to come back and crucify you guys. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah sure you are. And sure enough, he w- he went back and, and crucified them. So Noah exit question. To you, the Biden administration will be forced to undertake serious military action directly against Iranian forces to try to deal with this problem that we've been discussing. Yes or no?
0: Maybe something short of crucifixion. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of think so. I, I do, I just, the basic contours of this current flare-up of violence really closely mirror what we saw in 2019 and and perhaps even earlier in the 80s. And the only way those conflicts de-escalate, well, there are two ways. One, you can buy them off, which is probably what the Biden administration is inclined towards. And the fact that the spigot cut off, I think, has a lot to do with this flare-up in violence that we've seen since October 7th. Um, but that's unreliable. One another way to do it is to hit them in ways that that clarify the mind of members of the regime who really don't want to get into a direct conflict with the United States. The regime is really death, deathly afraid of the prospect of losing a war against the United States, which it would do in a direct conflict, which would threaten the stability of the regime. That's priority number one. And when you focus the minds by putting a ship at the bottom of the Gulf the Persian Gulf, or um, taking out an IRGC commander, as we did with the Soleimani strike, it changes the tempo of operations because of regime instability, fears of regime instability. And I don't see any other way to guide Iran towards an off-ramp here besides um, communicating and conveying our intention to engage in disproportionate strikes. So this will continue probably until and unless that kind of resolve manifests so do you, think um, do you think it will? It's, it's very hard for me to say yes, because this administration is so dead set against it. The president is so dead set against it, but I don't see how this stops in the absence of that.
2: Jim. Uh, I think the Biden administration will muddle through with as little military action as possible. Um, so not a decisive strike, nothing large scale. Um, pinprick strikes, probably something that reminds us of the NATO operations in Bosnia where we were, you know, the value of the cruise missile we were sending into the tank was more expensive than the tank. Um, and we, you know, so yeah, I guess check the box military action. Certainly nothing that will really prove to be an effective deterrent.
1: Charlie?
3: I think the answer has to be yes, because the alternative is unthinkable. Now, it, it's possible that it will take a long time and that we'll dither and dally for months. But eventually, Biden's going to have to do this because these people are impeding the backbone of the global liberal order. And at some point, it will creep into domestic politics, too. If this leads to even a small increase in the price. Of anything that people buy, the New York Times will start complaining about it and saying, Mr. President, Donald Trump is an existential threat to the republic. And by your lack of action, you have allowed things to be more expensive, which plays into his hands and we're all going to lose, etc. So, yeah, I just can't imagine, ultimately, how we can get away with not addressing this.
1: So, Charlie and I are in complete exit question alignment in this episode, First answer shocked. Second answer 25 percent. And then this one, I'm also a yes for exactly the same reason. And and I think Noah's answer kind of uh, implies this as well. That just eventually there'll be no choice. You know they'll they'll try everything, and eventually I believe will be will be forced into it. So with that, let's hear from our third sponsor of this episode, Babbel. The best way to learn a language: immersion, living where the language is spoken, mm-hmm. and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards for you. You can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, accessible rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel's better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is the equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold, plus all Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee and here's a special limited time deal for our listeners right now you can get 55% off your Babel subscription but only for editors listeners at babble.com slash editors get 55% off at babble.com slash editors spelled b-a-b-b-e-l.com slash editors rules and restrictions may apply So, Jim Garrity, let's hit a few other things before we go. You had to spend a lot of time in Iowa, killing time, because you timed your visit with a blizzard. So, you had to hang out uh, with other uh,
2: reporters and politicos who couldn't escape the hotel. How was that? Uh, Rich, first of all, not one blizzard, but two. You may recall that we taped uh, last week and I was doing from the hotel. Uh, That was one of the two Mazer blizzards. And by the way, all my Uber drivers were telling me, oh, we never get that much snow around here. You know, they just saved it all up for you. Uh, And then there was a second one coming primarily hitting Thursday night into Friday, uh, keeping me there for what, you know, an extra day. Um, Apparently, that was the most snow Des Moines had gotten in a five or six day period since 1941. Uh, naturally, when you write or talk about this, people call you wusses and say, "Ah, nobody get your own driver." And uh, ah, East Coast, you know, latte sipping. You know, uh, look, there was real snow out there, you know. Um, and so, one of the great ironies: I'm at the hotel, and a decent number of looked like DeSantis volunteers were there. Other members of the media, apparently CNN, but not. Uh, I think probably like you know, the background producers, cameraman, folks like that. And uh, we're all just sitting around in the lobby and talking to each other, chewing the fat, but like we all wanted to cover something. But a lot of the candidates had canceled their events. And even if they did, uh, if they hadn't canceled, getting there was uh, treacherous or not easy. And, of course, the turnout was not going to be as high. So you, everything was literally and metaphorically frozen in place for these last couple of days. I Again, I don't think if there had been beautiful weather for the last couple of days before the caucus that things would have changed that much. But if you were counting on a late push to, to help you over the hump or to help you a little bit, it probably did not shake out the way you wanted but hey, that's life on the campus you know.
1: <laughs> So Noah, you've had a second snowstorm and you're less enamored than the you were with the first snowstorm.
2: Yeah, that first
0: one is wonderful, especially after a snow drought. It's, you know, it's a marshmallow world. The kids are having a blast and you're sledding along with them. I had a great time. The second one is gratuitous. Don't need it. You have to plow the driveway again. You just did it. The thing gets covered in snow again. And we're supposed to get another snowstorm at the end of the week. I'm already over it. And it's only mid-January. And it's only going to get worse. But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to try to make the most of it with some more sledding later on. But even that's losing its appeal.
1: Charlie, you entered a batting cage and had some initial success. You know, the Yankees are looking for a super utility guy. Maybe that could be you. I
3: think it's almost certain at this point that it will be, given my (laughs) performance. People at home will presumably think, great, big deal, you went to a batting cage. I love American sports, but unlike most people who were born here, I never played them. We don't play American sports in England. We don't have baseball. We don't have football. So it's all new to me. I must have watched 700 baseball games in the last decade. But I've never hit a baseball. And a friend of mine texted me on Sunday and said, hey, do you want to go down to the batting cage, bring the kids, which I I did. And it just occurred to me on the way, this is a completely new experience. And I did hit the first ball that was pitched by the machine at me and was pretty pleased with myself. Although watching the video, I clearly... Grew up on cricket because I don't really know how to hold the bat. I need to learn how to hold the bat. I hit the ball most of the time, but I'm holding it in this strange cricket baseball hybrid sort of way. So work to do, but uh, a first at the age of 39.
1: Awesome. So I'm still I'm still on Christmas and, and Christmas gifts. So I got I got another one to mention that was very thoughtful. Our great ad guy. Jim Fowler sent me a box of Reggie bars. I didn't know these still existed, but they were a a, a special uh, branding, uh, special branded candy bar in 1978 to mark uh, the uh, amazing achievements of Reggie Jackson as a New York Yankee, especially hitting three home runs in one game in the 1977 World Series, meeting, uh, matching Babe Ruth's mark. And there was a free giveaway. A Yankee Stadium of Reggie Bars. And Reggie Bars are disc-shaped, so they are perfect for throwing. So sure enough, Reggie comes up in this game, hits a three-run homer, and every Reggie Bar that's been given away at Yankee Stadium is thrown onto the, the field. So every time I look at this box of Reggie Bars, I'm r- reminded of that event and their, their great, great afternoon Pick me up with that. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. I'll skip everything else and just say it's a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you appreciate what you read and hear and watch at nationalreview.com, please pay a little bit for it. Not a lot. We're not charging people an arm and arm and a leg. Just we uh, great first time discounts running at any given moment. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. And now it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick?
2: Well, while I'm happy with what I did out there uh, in Iowa, Audrey Falberg was out there reporting from the DeSantis election night party, which does not sound like it was very much of a party. Um, it's basically, uh, you know, the kind of good coverage you've come to expect from National Review, solid. You know, we, we tell you whether the news is good or whether the news is bad. Tell you, you know, what people are saying, what people are feeling. And uh, so, Audrey, very good work out there. And just also just really good work by the news team. And also throw out that uh, uh, Judson Berger got us to have, like, our actual updating numbers with each county. It's the way you see on a bunch of other sites. National Review has that as well. I think we did a really great job. Of covering what might be one of very few competitive primaries <laughs> of this entire uh, or contests of this uh, 2024 presidential primary.
1: So my understanding, you know, as as you know from your experience out there, Jim, on on the cusp of a caucus or a primary, the, these states become very small places. And Audrey, she was experiencing what you experienced. So all the events were canceled. You know, travel's hazardous. So what she's going, what is she going to do? So I think she ended up. If I, I have the story correct, she just ended up doing some kind of man on the street style interviews in, in the local supermarket, or maybe it was like a gas station slash supermarket. And one of the, the people she gets to talking to about how he sees the race turns out to be Chris
2: Lasavita,
1: a Trump, ah, a Trump ah, official. I'm,
2: so Hey, um, when you're trying to do a man on the street interviews and snowstorms, there just aren't a lot of people on the street. So Yeah,
1: exactly. Noah, what's your pick?
0: I mean, there's so much to choose from that it, it it's, Rough to even pick one, Um, but late entry from Charles C.W. Cook this morning takes the cake. It is titled Pithily Now What? Uh, The URL is actually Now What 2, which means there's been another Now What earlier. I wonder what the answer to that question (laughs) is. And I'm tempted to read every Probably from 2016, though.
1: (laughs) Now What 3 is going to be a real uh, corker. That's the
0: 2028 one I've been planning. There you go. Now What 3. Um, but like I said, I've been tempted to read every every word of this piece that so perfectly encapsulates my my sentiments, my emotional response to the results of last night's election. Um, insofar as as Charlie writes, uh, the Republican Party has been communicating in no uncertain terms that we are not wanted. At least people who think like me, Uh, the anti deluvian sort for whom conservatism means limited government, fiscal responsibility, extroversion on the world stage. We are not desired to be part of this coalition. It's about time uh, we acknowledged where we are not wanted. Charlie, what's your
1: pick?
3: I'm going to pick. Biden's independent contracting rule destroys worker independence by F. Vincent Venuccio. Whoa. This is a great example of why policy matters. I know that nobody cares about policy anymore, but policy matters. California adopted a terrible rule that diluted the independence of contractors and tried to put them in a position in which they could be more heavily regulated by government and, if we're honest, forced into unions. It was a massive disaster. There was a backlash. But no one cares in the Democratic Party because they have different prerogatives. And now they're trying to nationalize this rule. The Biden administration is trying to force this on 50 states, having seen what it did in California. And that's because Republicans lost and they don't have big enough majorities in the House or Senate to stop it. And so this, if it's not stopped by some other means, or if it doesn't cause enough of a backlash, will now be the law in the United States. And F. Vincent Vernuccio goes through perfectly why this matters, why real people's lives will be affected by this. People who have been operating under a certain set of rules for years, who will now have them summarily changed by the executive branch, it matters. So, If you wonder today why politics should be about more than one person, that's a good place
1: to start. So my pick is our editorial on the Michael Mann case. We were in this case for about, 10 years until we got out of it i don't know about a a year or two ago it's a complete outrage it's a malicious case based on a a blog post at ci and and also by mark stein on the corner harshly criticizing michael mann which actually newsflash is allowed in a free society there's supposed to be all sorts of protections for free speech from the first amendment on down, including various statutes, and it's just it's absurd that Mark Stein and Rand Simberg, who posted at CEI, are still in this thing. And the trial is is was scheduled to start today. And you know, Stein and Simberg have to hope they're going to get a fair shot uh, from a, a DC jury, which seems very unlikely. I think ultimately they will prevail in this case. They should prevail in this case, but it could take years more. And uh, it's a, a nightmare out of, uh, out of Dickson, Dickens and his parodies of how the English court system worked at the time. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National You podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, recount of this game without the express written permission of National You magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schooty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Bound by Oath, C SPAN, and Babel. And thanks especially all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.